Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. I'm your host, Nav C. And I'm your host, Nav M. Welcome to another hour of Alternative Views. In this show, we help you rethink, reshape, and reform ongoing narratives. So the growth of incarceration rates in the United States have continued to rise for over five decades and have given rise to a broad range of commentary and a significant amount of research regarding its possible causes. Equally important are the consequences for those individuals imprisoned, their immediate families, the wider communities, and ultimately the implications for U.S. society. In this episode, we examine the conditions for the transformation of the U.S. criminal justice system, now characterized by punitive policies and practices, rigid law enforcement, and unprecedented high rates of incarceration. Many of these penal policies can trace their origins to the 1940s, where efforts were first initiated at federal level to change criminal justice policies and practices on a national scale. The growing federal role in crime policy was largely due to the political volatility brought about by rising crime rates, especially after the early 1960s, and the subsequent political electoral realignment triggered by the civil rights movement. Of equal significance is the war on drugs declared by President Nixon and successive administrations stemming from rising public anxiety about crime and growing economic distress in major U.S. cities during the 1970s and 80s. And although rising crime rates are a key part of the overall narrative today, it's, it's only by examining those trends within their social, political and historical context that we can understand the underlying causes of the steep increase in incarceration rates. And interestingly, many Western countries also experienced rising crime rates during the 1960s, but those countries did not adopt harsher policies and laws in the same way as the U.S. did. And in its most basic form, incarceration is used as a form of punishment in every country of the world. Moreover, public opinion is often swayed by politicians and policymakers with compelling mantras such as the war on crime or getting tough on crime to control the so-called undesirable elements of society. In many countries, it represents the most severe form of punishment that the judicial system can impose, but its many advocates also argue that firm sentencing is entirely justified in order to incapacitate criminals. And from a historical point of view, the transformative effect on the individual and their subsequent rehabilitation makes prison sentencing a justly deserved and proportionate response to crime according to its proponents. And while there is much disagreement regarding the way in which prisons should operate, international law nevertheless strongly emphasizes the importance of rehabilitation and reintegration in order to meet the primary purpose of imprisonment. 
However, as we shall see in the second segment of this episode, the US justice system, along with political elites, engineered a unique path to crime control that traverses poor and minority communities across the United States. Which leads us to the sobering conclusion that rehabilitation has gradually been abandoned as a policy framework over the past five decades in favor of a model of mass incarceration. So in this episode, our focus will be reassessing the main causes, scope and consequences of contemporary incarceration rates in the United States. And this will be addressed through four main review areas. Firstly, What changes in American society and U.S. public policy led to the rise in incarceration? Secondly, what consequences have these changes had for crime rates? Thirdly, what are the effects of incarceration on those in confinement, their children and families and their respective neighborhoods and communities? And finally, what are the wider ramifications on U.S. society in terms of the economy, cultural issues and political structure? and also the implications for public policy. So to begin with, a useful starting point is a brief background on incarceration. Throughout the world, policies which control human liberty by locking up offenders are often portrayed as the reflection of the public's will. And this is manifested in a range of punitive policies, such as capital punishment, three strikes and your outlaws, and a variety of get-tough policies. From the outset, it appears blatantly obvious prisons exist because crime exists. Therefore, it's imperative for civilized societies to maintain prisons, to protect society against crime, and to reduce the concept of recidivism, which is a term referring to recurring crimes and repeat offending. But in recent decades, many researchers and journalists have begun to challenge this stereotypical view, arguing there is an ambiguous relationship between prison and crime. Prisons certainly have something to do with crime, but it's not exactly clear how the two interact. This is because if the purpose of imprisonment is to deprive a person of the liberty, this can only be achieved if the period of incarceration is directed towards reintegration of offenders into society upon their release so that they lead a law-abiding and fulfilling life. Yet there is little evidence to suggest that the use of imprisonment as a punishment worldwide has been effective in achieving the same. Indeed, the over-reliance on incarceration has led to a growing recognition that overcrowding and poor regimes in penal institutions around the world lead to significant human rights violations, with prisoners enduring inhuman and degrading prison conditions without adequate access to basic services or rehabilitation programs. Many prisoners are subjected to appalling treatment and conditions that inherently undermine their individual dignity and their value as human beings. Hence, if the prison system is fundamentally flawed, why then do societies persist? Empirical studies show that prisons on the whole do not incapacitate and often they do not deter others mainly because there are far too many differences between individuals, groups, and cultures to support an all-encompassing system of justice. 
Eminent sociologist Thomas Matthiessen first addressed these questions in his 1990 book, Prison on Trial, a Critical Assessment. He states, quote, we have prisons despite their fiasco because there exists a pervasive and persistent ideology of prison in our society. An ideology of prison renders the prison as an institution and a sanction meaningful and legitimate, end quote. He goes on to state that assuming an advanced capital society, prisons serve four important ideological functions. Firstly, an ex-purgatory function, which means removing a significant proportion of the unproductive population. Secondly, a power-draining function. That means removing those offenders in a controlled way, draining off whatever power they previously had. Thirdly, a diverting function. And this is to divert attention away from the deviance of those who have power in our class society. And finally, prisons are seen as a symbolic function. And these four functions provide the prison system with an element of much needed positivity, namely the ability to reform something or an individual. The debate around why societies persist in pursuing a flawed incarceration system is a central theme throughout this episode. But first, let's start with a brief introduction on mass incarceration rates by focusing on the United States as the main case study. So what we see is that mass incarceration rates have reached record levels and the combined world prison population recently surpassed 11 million. This recorded a 20% increase between 2002 and 2020, according to figures from PrisonerInsider.com, released in June 2020. The United States has the highest absolute number of people in prison globally, with over 2.1 million people in prison, at a rate of 655 people per 100,000 of the national population. China has the second highest prison population, with an estimated 1.7 million people imprisoned, followed by Brazil, where, based on figures from June 2019, the prison population approaches 760,000. And when we examine the trends from Western nations, we see that in 10 of the 12 nations which are predominantly English-speaking, the prisoner rate has increased in the last 40 years. The USA presently stands at the top of the world, penal incarceration rate. But let's remember it wasn't always this way. For most of the 20th century until the mid-1970s, the USA had a relatively stable rate of incarceration, remaining well below 200 per 100,000 of the national population. In 1970, though, the average daily population of those confined in prison or jail was 250,000. But the dramatic rise in subsequent decades has been unique. For instance, by the early 1980s, the USA prisoner average daily population had doubled to more than 500,000 prisoners. By February 2000, this number had surpassed the 2 million mark. And in 2010, based on figures, the USA imprisoned 2.3 million people at a rate of 748 per 100,000, which equates to 7.3 million people. In other words, let's put this into context, one in every 33 adults was, in, was either in prison, on parole, or on probation. 
prisoner rates in the USA are now five times more compared to Western European countries. And some researchers have described the increase in the United States prison population as nothing short of mass incarceration. But interestingly, the term mass incarceration does not apply to the majority of the population because it almost exclusively applies to black, Latino and Hispanic Americans. For instance, while more than one in 100 American adults are in prison, the figure is one in 50 for Hispanic men and one in 20 for, for black men. The overall incarceration rate for men in the USA is 943 per 100,000. And when we convert this to a race category, it's 487 for white men, but a staggering increase to 1,261 for Hispanics and 3,042 for black men. And despite the fact that black Americans make up only 13% of the U.S. population, they comprise 39% of the U.S. prison population, according to recent figures from the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And they're eight times more likely to be incarcerated than the white population. The data clearly reveals glaring racial disparities in the American criminal justice system. But before examining those disparities, let's undertake a review of incarceration. Why have incarceration rates risen? So first, let's put this in context. The rate of incarceration in the United States experienced decades of stability from the 1920s to the 70s. And then it quadrupled after the 1970s. And a simplistic view would be that the growth of mass incarceration in the US implies that the prison system has essentially achieved its aim. After all, prisons have existed for centuries as a place of punishment. So there must be a clear trajectory which plots the introduction, historical development and current expansion. And there are five well-known arguments in defense of the prison system and its stated aims. Firstly, prisons are a natural and inevitable response to crime. Secondly, prisons prevent crime by deterring offenders. Thirdly, the prison turns bad criminals into good citizens. Number four, prisons protect the public from dangerous offenders. And finally, number five, prison reflects our need to punish crime. But closer examination reveals that the causes of higher incarceration rates have significant long-term policy implications. And this is according to a 2014 report entitled The Growth of Incarceration in the United States, commissioned under the auspices of the National Research Council. The authors of the report, Jeremy Travis and Bruce Weston, reviewed evidence of the effects of high incarceration rates on inmates, their families and the communities to which these individuals would eventually return. And we can elaborate on some of their main findings. So from 1973 to 2009, the populations of state and federal prison rose steadily from 200,000 to 1.5 million. In addition to those serving prison time for fennel, f, f, so, excuse me, <laughs> felonies, another 700,000 are held daily in local jails. In recent years, the federal prison system has continued to expand while the state incarceration rate has declined. 
The US penal population of 2.2 million adults is the largest in the world. And to put this in some kind of context, in 2012, close to 25% of the world's prisoners were held in American prisons, although the United States accounts for only 5% of the world's population. So what we see is a clear trend showing that incarceration rates in the United States over the past four to five decades have been historically unprecedented and unique among international countries. Those individuals incarcerated in U.S. prisons come mainly from the most disadvantaged segments of the population. They comprise mainly minority men who are under the age of 40, poorly educated, often burdened with drug and alcohol addiction, mental and physical illness, and a lack of work preparation or experience. Although their criminal liabilities are real, there is a discernible context of social and economic disadvantage. More than half the prison population is black or Hispanic. In 2010, according to figures, it reveals that blacks were incarcerated at six times the rate for whites and Hispanics at three times the rate for non-Hispanics. So now that we have some context, let's approach our first review area, which is the main causes of incarceration. By the time incarceration rates began to rise in the early 1970s, the United States had passed through a period of profound social and political upheaval due to factors such as structural unemployment, race relations, and also the fallout from the Vietnam War. The focus on crime took center stage in national policy debates and the political conversation slowly introduced the issue of race. During the 1960s and 70s, a changed political climate provided the seedbed for a series of new policy choices. And across all branches and levels of government, criminal processing and sentencing began to expand the use of incarceration in a number of ways. For instance, prison time was increasingly employed for lesser offences. Time served was lengthened for violent crimes, repeat offenders and drug crimes. In particular, street dealing in urban areas was heavily policed and punished. So the key point here is the changes enacted at policy level regarding punishment were the main drivers of growth in incarceration. Throughout the 1970s, the number of arrests and court caseloads increased and prosecutors and judges became harsher in sentencing. During the 1980s, convicted defendants became more likely to serve prison time following an arrest, accounting for more than 50% of the growth in state prisons. Essentially, arrest rates for drug offences rose during the 1970s and mandatory prison time for these offences became more common in the 1980s. And during the 1980s, US Congress and most state legislators passed laws mandating lengthy prison sentences in the region of five 10, 20 years or longer for drug offences, violent offences, and for those deemed to be career criminals. And when we move on to the 1990s, Congress and more than half of all US states enacted the infamous three strikes in your outlaws, which mandated minimum sentences of 25 years or longer for targeted offenders. In addition, the majority of states enacted truth in sentencing laws, which required offenders to serve at least 85% of their normal, of their nominal prison sentence. And these changes in sentences reflected a view that incarceration was a key instrument for 
crime control. Yet over the f- four decades that incarceration, rate, incarceration rates increased, U.S. crime rates showed no clear trend. In particular, the rate of violent crime fluctuated sharply during this period. Hence, the most tenable explanation for the rising incarceration was not rising crime rates, but the policy choices made by legislators to increase the use of imprisonment. Mandatory prison sentences, heavy use of drug enforcement laws and lengthier sentences contributed not only to an uptick in incarceration rates, but also the disproportionate rates of incarceration in black, Hispanic and Latino communities. The heavy enforcement of drug laws affected blacks more than whites in relation to mandatory minimum sentences. Despite the fact there was little difference in trafficking rates among blacks compared to whites. Blacks had historically been more likely than whites to be arrested for violence, but changes in legislation such as three strikes increased sentences and time served for blacks more than whites. Consequently, the absolute disparities in incarceration increased and imprisonment became commonplace for young minority men, particularly those with very little schooling. So having looked at the causes, let's take a look at our second review area, which is what are the main social consequences of punitive legislation? Rising incarceration may have caused a decrease in crime, but the magnitude of the reduction is highly debatable, and the results of most studies suggest it was unlikely to have been very big. Most research on incarceration focused on deterrence and the incapacitation of offenders, yet research on deterrence suggests that would-be offenders are dissuaded by the risk of being caught rather than the severity of the penalty. High rates of incarceration may have reduced crime rates through incapacitation, in other words, locking up people who might otherwise commit those crimes, but there is no overall consensus on the magnitude of this effect. Also, there is a marked decline in offending as age increases. Hence, the incapacitation effect of very long sentences is likely to be very small. And that's mainly because the phenomenon of recidivism rates, the propensity to reoffend declines markedly with age. Therefore, lengthy prison sentences are an inefficient method of preventing crime by incapacitation. So let's look at how incarceration rates are distributed across the population. Prison and jail inmates are drawn mainly from the least educated segments of society, regardless of their race or ethnicity. Incarceration rates are much higher among young black men with little schooling. Among black male high school dropouts, about two-thirds have a prison record by the age of 30, which is more than twice the rate for their white counterparts. In the era of high incarceration rates, reoffending has become commonplace in minority neighborhoods, characterized by high levels of crime, poverty, family instability, poor health, and residential segregation. And this leads us to our third review area, which is what effect does incarceration have on those in confinement? In particular, the impact of physical mental health on incarceration, which is arguably the most contentious issue surrounding imprisonment. Many of the most disadvantaged segments of society enter prison in unsound physical and mental health. 
the poor health status of the inmate population serves to underline the burden of social disadvantage and highlights the relevance of prisons as substitute public health institutions. Incarceration is linked with overlapping issues such as substance abuse, mental illness and the rise of infectious diseases, example HIV, hepatitis and other STDs. This scenario creates a huge challenge for the provision of healthcare for inmates as well as creating opportunities for screening, diagnosis and treatment. Prison conditions can be especially hard on individuals with mental health, causing severe psychological distress. Although levels of lethal violence in prisons has declined, conditions have deteriorated in other areas. And increased rates of incarceration have been accompanied by overcrowding and less opportunity for rehabilitative programs, creating a a growing burden on health and care services. Many state prisons and the Federal Bureau of Prisons operate at above 100% of their designed capacity. And with overcrowding, cells designed for a single inmate often house two or even three people. Research reveals that overcrowding, especially at high levels, is often associated with poor health, behavioural consequences and increased risk of suicide. Incarceration is strongly correlated with negative social and economic outcomes for former prisoners and their families. Men with a criminal record often experience reduced employment prospects and earnings after a spell in prison. And this is more so for the incarceration of fathers, which creates extreme family hardship, including housing insecurity and behavioural problems in children. So from 1980 to 2000, the number of children with incarcerated fathers increased from around 350,000 to 2.1 million, which equates to around 3% of all US children. And the rise in incarceration rates marked an expansion of the role of the justice system in the nation's poorest communities. And many of of those entering prison came from and will return to the same disadvantaged communities. And when they return, their lives are characterized by an ongoing cycle of violence, joblessness, substance abuse, family breakdown and neighborhood disadvantage. So given the evidence, crime reduction and socioeconomic disadvantage are tangible factors to increased incarceration. The vast expansion of the criminal justice system has created a large population whose access to public benefits, occupation, vocational licenses is limited because of their criminal record. High rates of incarceration are associated with lower levels of civic and political engagement among former prisoners and their families than among others in their communities. So we see that disenfranchisement of former prisoners continues to weaken the real power of low-income and minority communities. And for these people, the quality of citizenship, their inclusion in American society and the relationship to public institution has been impaired. And for the remainder of this episode, we'll focus on the final review area, which is arguably the most complex, which is the implications for public policy. So we're just coming up to a break now. And there'll be much more to come uh, in the next segment. We'll see you in the very shortly. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you ready for a broad look at everything to do with the world of sports? If so, tune in to the Mike Abadir Show. It's a unique perspective to the connections between sports and business. Host Mike Abadir has negotiated numerous deals in the NFL. Along with co-host Gino Bacola, Mike will bring his expertise, discussion, and some terrific guests to the airwaves. Listen live for the Mike Abadir Show every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? Definitely not. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Edward Cheney. Ed will explain full-spectrum CBD, where the whole hemp plant can be used for treatment, and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are, at home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. To find out more about us and the ideas behind our show, visit our website at gmc-radio.com. That's gmc-radio.com. Now, back to Good Morning Canada. Welcome back. You're listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. It's great to have your company. So in the first segment, we focused on four review areas of mass incarceration, and we covered the first three. And now I'll be beginning with the fourth review area, which is what are the implications for public policy of high levels of incarceration. So the forcible deprivation of liberty and detention in a purpose-built facility is essentially a restriction on the individual freedom of, of a person. And not only that, the freedom to which liberal societies aspire to incarceration represents a collective decision that certain individuals are either too dangerous or their crimes too serious for them to circulate freely in the community. Therefore, to preserve order and safety, to ensure lawful conduct and to help remedy criminal behavior, our society has built lockups, detention centers, asylums, jails and prisons. And these institutions reflect how a society through its political process has negotiated a compromise between order and freedom. Incarceration is in many ways a foundational institution, being the last resort of a state's authority in the performance of its many functions. 
the use and character of incarceration reveals something fundamental about the society's level of civilization and the quality of citizenship it hopes to project. Although contemporary incarceration takes many forms, our primary focus for the remainder of this episode is on adults incarcerated in prisons and jails because they are the ones closely linked to this phenomenon of a steep rise in incarceration of over the last four to five decades. And in the first segment, I provided a brief insight into why the US incarceration rate grew so dramatically. And I also examined the far-reaching consequences of being incarcerated for families, communities, and wider society. So for several decades, enthusiasm for incarceration dominated crime policy and the related public conversation. But commentators on both sides of the political divide are now reacting critically to the incarceration boom, partly out of concern for growing correctional budgets, partly because of questions about the effectiveness of incarceration in reducing crime, and partly out of misgivings about the values that have come to dominate penal policy. Furthermore, by analysing the effects of imprisonment on individuals who serve prison sentences during these five decades of high incarceration, many researchers and commentators are now considering the aggregate cumulative effects of the nation's incarceration policies. America's high rates of incarceration have changed the meaning and consequences of a prison sentence for th- and for those who go to prison and for the families and communities to which they return. Over the course of time, high incarceration rates affect policy framework on a range of public issues, including health, social housing, public safety, the efficient functioning of labor markets, the economy, the social cultural fabric of communities, and the inevitable skewing of distribution of income and opportunity. High rates of incarceration also affect U.S. civic life. They influence the nation's drive for social justice and possibly tip the balance in national elections. And at its most basic level, more incarceration uses resources that could be spent for other useful purposes. Before we we review the issue of public policy in much greater depth, we will need to provide a more comprehensive background on the underlying social and economic causes of higher incarceration rates. And to do this, I'll hand over to Navsi, who will begin her piece. Thank you, Navem. Okay, uh, I would like to start with the underlying causes which led to the rise in the incarceration rates. In order to understand the causes for the rise in incarceration, it's important to examine not only legislation and policies, but also changes in police practice, the various behavior of prosecutors and judges, and how parole was administrated and how various laws were implemented. The many influences on incarceration levels have also uh, had a you know, a social and historical context, including public concerns about crime and disorder, political incentives, and of course, a complex history and evolution of race relations within the reins of politics. But let's first explore the social, political, economical, and 
institutional forces that explain why politicians and policymakers responded to changes in America in the post-war era by pursuing harsher policies and laws. First point is emergency of, um, sorry, first point is emergence of black minority within the prison population. Now, between the 1930s and the 1970s, the prison population in the U.S. was racially transformed. In the 1920s, fewer than one in three prisoners were black. By the late 1980s, for the first time in U.S. history, the majority of prisoners were black. The presence of a growing and disproportionate number of black inmates within the U.S. prison population was significant. Because of because it focused government and public attention on prisons in a way not seen in other countries. Furthermore, it occurred at a time of rising political mobilization and tension around racial issues. Effectively, the prison, the prison system became an important part of the political fabric and the focal point for debates involving race, justice, and oppression. Secondly, World War II had a transformative effect on U.S. prisons. This applies mainly to the influx of new types of prisoners into the federal uh, into federal penitentiaries, they were targeted for violations of the 1940 Selective Service Act, including Elijah Muhammad, the founder of the Nation of Islam, who was sent to a federal facility in Minnesota in 1942 after refusing to be drafted. These, these conscientious objectors, many of whom were sentenced to lengthy terms, you know, tended to be more educated, politically savvy, and ready to challenge prison authorities on a number of issues, in particular race. Third, third point is a shift into the national political paradigm. Now, during the 1960s, there was a major electoral realignment in national policies as the Democratic Party remained divided over civil rights, while the Republican Party became more competitive in the South for the first time since Reconstruction. There was an escalation in national crime rates beginning in 1961. Major transformations occurred in urban economies that included the disappearance of many well-paid jobs for low-skilled workers. Significant features of American political institutions emerged, including the partisan political appointment of judges and prosecutors. A winner-takes-all two-party electoral system, the use of ballot initiatives and referenda in some, in some states to develop criminal justice policy. This mix of unique conditions made the United States more vulnerable than any other time through the history of the polit politicization of criminal justice in a punitive direction. The fifth point is structural, structural social and economic issues. Beginning in the 1960s, a complex combination of contributing factors, including organized, pro organized protests, urban riots, Violent crime, drug use, the collapse of urban schools, and many other factors contributed to declining the economic opportunities in many neighborhoods and spawned a greater fear for crime. After 1970, there was the global wave of deindustrialization and mass un unemployment. The advance of technological changes, international and competition. Also, shifting markets contributed to the elimination of many relatively high-paying jobs for less educated workers and specialized skills. 
the cities of the northeast and midwest of the United States, such as Detroit, Chicago, Cleveland, were some of the hardest hit by the wave of industrial losses, which subsequently experienced a sustained increase in crime. In the 1980s, there was a wave of crack cocaine use, and related street crime hit many of the nation's already distressed inner cities. In the wake of these and other structural economic shifts, employment fell among young people with low skills, poor schooling, and inadequate work experience. The the income gap between unskilled and skilled workers widened. Large-scale migrations from rural to urban areas and influx of lower-skilled, undocumented workers from Mexico and Central America coincided with the widening inequality. In response to the protests and turmoils, turmoils of 1960s, a national commission examined the causes of racial division and the historical roots of violence in the United States. A variety of ex- experts recommended renewed efforts to address poverty and racial inequality at core levels. The Great Society programs of President Johnson administra- administration were designed to address poverty. But an increase in violent crime and civil disorder, which began during the 1960s, contributed to a climate of public fear of crime, and this led to support for tougher sanctions on crime. These fears of social and civic breakdown contributed to a series of changes in criminal laws and prescribed punishments, changes in law enforcement and criminal justice procedures, as well as other changes affecting the frequency and severity of punishments, including incarceration. Pessimism emerged among industry professionals as well as the larger public about the potential of prisons to rehabilitate their uh, occupants. Those affected most directly by changes in the criminal justice system lived in the neighborhoods, most severely affected by the loss of economic opportunity and other forms of social distress, including high rates of violent crime and drug dealing. Subsequently, in the decades that have followed, the period of rising incarceration rates, further attention was directed to illegal immigration and to sex offenders, which ultimately led to new laws and penalties, resulting in growing numbers detained and sentenced to prison for such offenses. Now, a full description of the complex and um, evolving social context for this for the expanded use of incarceration in the United States is beyond the scope of this episode. So at this point, I would like to hand over to Navem, who will begin with his summary. Thank you, Navsi, for that account of the underlying causes of rising incarcerations, because it provides a valuable link to the final piece of this episode, which is reviewing public policy implications over the past four to five decades. And we have a number of key points to reflect on. Firstly, the rising prisoner population was not an isolated event. It's important to note that the United States has experienced several other periods of sweeping social change and disorder in which incarceration rates did not rise. However, the period since the 1970s highlights how the United States stood apart from other advanced economies in the direction that it took. 
And a sobering point to note is that the growth of the penal system and high rates of incarceration did not occur by accident. They resulted from a series of policy decisions that were designed to increase the severity of sanctions. Moreover, the view we take of a rising prisoner population in the U.S. depends in part on our understanding of the purposes served by imprisonment for society and for the sentenced individual. Crime and punishment are essentially social and legal constructs. Their nature and meanings change over time and differ from one person to another, from one society to another, and most notably in the United States, from one presidential administration to another. The shifting criminal justice practice, policies and laws in the post-war era, which resulted in high incarceration rates, were unique. Firstly, it broke from historical tradition, and secondly, it was distinct from many other Western countries during the latter part of the 20th century. The second point of reflection is the shift from state to federal perspective. Prior to World War II, criminal justice policy in the U.S. fell almost exclusively within the scope of states or local authorities, not the federal government. However, from the 1940s onward, policymakers at all levels of government increasingly sought changes in policing, prosecutor strategy, criminal justice policy, and overall legislation. These changes ultimately resulted in major increases in the government's capacity to pursue and punish offenders from the 1970s onwards. Furthermore, criminal justice became a persistent rather than an intermittent issue in U.S. politics. It was an unparalleled period in U.S. history beginning in the 1960s, whereby politicians and public officials utilized criminal justice legislation and policies for express political purposes. Essentially, the issue of street crime became a national focal point based on state and local perspectives. The third reflection is a shift from the model of rehabilitation to punitive measures. Researchers of mass incarceration have pointed to the 1970s as a key turning point in U.S. penal history. This period was marked by a shift towards more punitive measures and a consensus that, quote, nothing works anymore in rehabilitating inmates. And as mentioned earlier, the dramatic increase in the scale of imprisonment was largely the product of a series of sentencing and policy changes that ratcheted up criminal justice sanctions. A pivotal shift in these changes was the move to determinate sentencing, which included sentencing guidelines and rubrics mandatory minimum sentencing laws, truth in sentencing statutes, habitual offender laws, and the abolition of discretionary parole. In addition, there has been a push toward more degrading forms of punishment, such as the return of chain gangs in certain states, tougher penalties for young people convicted of crime, heavier legislation against sex and drug-related crimes, and increasing punitive supermax facilities, including the use of solitary confinement. But most noteworthy has been the fundamental change in the rationale for prison sentences. 
One of the major changes in this period has been the decline of the rehabilitative ideal, the idea that prisons ought to serve as a place of reform where inmates could be rehabilitated and prepared for a return to society. In place of rehabilitation, deterrence and incapacitation have become the new goals of prison in various forms. This central shift has been referred to as the new punitiveness or culture of control. However, despite its many forms, researchers have argued that the contemporary criminal justice system has become less oriented towards rehabilitation. And these profound changes have changed the basic rationale of prison facilities, which have been described by certain scholars as nothing more than human warehouses. Lois Wacant referred to this shift in rationale in his 2001 article, Deadly Symbiosis, When Ghetto and Prison Meet and Mesh. He summarily states that the big house that embodied the correctional ideal of community reintegration of inmates gave way to a race-divided and violence-ridden warehouse geared solely to neutralizing social rejects by sequestering them physically from society, end quote. So from this quote, we can determine a great deal about the process of devolution in U.S. prisons. It suggests that the older big house prisons were centered on the idea of treatment, but this focus has now been cast aside and contemporary prisons are essentially violent warehouses for people who have been judged irredeemable by society. And the fourth area of review is the political elites were also aided in their cause by some unlikely allies. So by the 1990s, the political consensus in favor of get-tough penal policies had become a defining feature of contemporary American politics, even though the extraordinary scale of mass incarceration remained free of public scrutiny. But the strength of this consensus should not lead us to the conclusion that it was solely politicians and their allies that were responsible for propelling the prison boom. Because although political elites engineered social control of the most vulnerable socioeconomic groups, there were a variety of other political groups which facilitated this transition. And this includes women's groups, prisoners' rights organization, and the anti-death penalty movement groups. Although they didn't initiate the law and order cause, they certainly helped to propel it once the political elites declared war on crime and criminals. And it's also fair to say that these movements are not to blame for the rise of mass incarceration or the consolidation of a powerful victims' rights movement and institutional factors during that period. So let's now consider the economic burden of the vast penal system. It was only during the financial crisis of 2007-2008 that many commentators began to take note of the increasingly untenable nature of the giant prison apparatus in the United States. Penal incarceration consumes a huge allocation of national and state budgets, yet there is a conspicuous lack of debate about its fundamental premise. 
Although the drive to incarcerate began in the early 1970s, many of its negative consequences could not have been predicted at the time, especially when so many states were faced with dire financial straits. The 2001 recession focused attention on the prison building boom as severe budget deficits again forced states to close prisons and lay off guards. But at the same time, there was little change in the U.S. incarceration rate, which continued to rise. But it was during the recession of 2007 and 2008 where commentators began to reevaluate the inherent wisdom of mass incarceration in circles beyond prison activists. And despite the fact that building prisons provide construction companies with employment and steady incomes for guards, it still represents a massive infrastructure project whereby the economic returns have to be justified in terms of dollars and cents. So let's start wrapping up with some final remarks. The issue of mass incarceration rises over the past four to five decades can trace its origins to a complex set of factors, including historical, institutional and political developments. No single factor explains its rise and no single factor will bring about its reversal. Despite mounting administration costs to state fiscal ledgers, no amount of physical rhetoric will be enough to reverse the boom in prison facilities because it will take a much broader social and political consensus to bring about real change rather than a bottom line view of how prisons are draining state funds. But by focusing on the problem of mass imprisonment as a white elephant issue, this may provide short-term relief, but there are real opportunity costs from a social perspective, such as diverting attention away from how key social and political institutions operate in the United States. But more importantly, what type of society are we trying to create? Is it one that favours economic agenda over compelling civil and human rights arguments? Is it one where swathes of black, Hispanic and other economically deprived populations perpetuate a cycle of social disadvantage by residing in decaying communities? Is it one which perpetuates the infliction of pain on both victims and offenders? Or is it one where the fairness and the legitimacy of US political institutions are scrutinised under a broader umbrella of social transparency? So let's now discuss some reflections on the race card. The mass incarceration of black Americans has undoubtedly been a defining feature of U.S. penal policy. But any social movement which begins to challenge the entire penal state would need to present a more robust argument than solely race-based claims that mass incarceration is the new Jim Crow. Although this assertion provides new insights into our understanding of mass incarceration, it clearly possesses drawbacks. This mainly centers around the confusion it has created between the war on drugs and links to the penal state. As mentioned earlier in the episode, it was a combined effort of policymakers, legislators and the judiciary system. Therefore, tinting mass incarceration with a racial filter distorts the various nuances of the crisis within the penal system. And let's not forget that the USA is unique in this situation, not because it, because it locks up so many people, but due to the exceptionally brutal and dehumanizing conditions which exist in many of its jails and prisons for people of various races and ethnicities. 
Furthermore, by viewing mass incarceration primarily through a race racial lens, it ignores the underlying social, economic, and political factors which have contributed to punitive policies for various socioeconomic groups. But at a more fundamental level, it's a sobering thought that when we note we note that humanity has reached a low point in its social and political history, whereby we have stopped believing in state projects and society's ability to create better citizens. Instead, we have perfected prisons into processing plants of human misery. The premise behind this unique logic is that individuals should behave in predetermined ways. And if they do not be- become that, the economically perfect creature as desired by the model of neoliberalism, then prison awaits as a real alternative. Yet prisons stand out as a glaring anomaly in the era of neoliberal gov- governance, which has seen the s- the state exit a great many of the social functions that it used to perform in the United States and many Western countries. State intervention has been abolished because the prevailing view is the state can no longer do anything worthwhile or make a positive impact. And the most it can do is restrain, not produce. Hence, it makes perfect sense that prisons have few alternatives which can challenge their existence given the limited vision of state capacity. Finally, we are forced to contemplate how the state has reincarnated into a vassal of wider globalization along with its co-conspirator, the marketplace. This vision ties in neatly with the premise of individual subservience and incapacitation of the individual. Ultimately, this is why we build institutions around the individual. That's all we have time for for today's episode. Many thanks for listening to Good Morning Canada. We really appreciated your company. If you have any comments on any of the issues discussed in today's show, you can send feedback by emailing us from our Voice America host site. Thank you. We'll see you next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern. Bye for now. See you then. Take care. Thank you for listening to Good Morning Canada. Please join NAVC and NAVM for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon.